Good evening, everybody. There we go. Man, you are getting further and further away from me every single week. Oh, Vic will take the, the mid. That'll be right. That'll, that'll work. Uh, if you have brought any offering uh, to give to the Lord in worship, why don't you just prepare that because we'll, we will take that up in just a moment. Um, want to uh, tell you all what, what a joy it is to be with everyone tonight. Can you open up? We're starting our new series, and I don't think I promoted this last week. I don't think I let you know, uh, and I apologize because it's, it's going to be a full-on series. Should have given you some prep time, but we're doing the very short, very concise, very easy and neat book of First Corinthians uh, from now in the evening series, and so we're going to, uh, it's, it's going to get messy, but we're family. We're in this for the ride. It's a good, fun uh, book, so uh, before we, while you open up to that, um, why don't I pray over the offering before that's given up, eh? <clears throat> Father God, you are, you are far, far too good to us. You are, you are pouring out always blessings to us that we do not deserve. And even in our, even in our, most, um, our most lacking moments when we have nothing but the clothes on our back, we just have one set of clothes too many compared to what we deserve. Lord, we thank you for the breath that you give to us to every day go on proclaiming your goodness, sharing your gospel, working forwards in your mission. And we, we thank you for the uh, abundant blessings you've given to this church, our, uh, the place where we can meet, the, the, the growing number of people coming here, the, uh, the, the technology that allows us to go online, all of these things, God. We do not want to be uh, cul-de-sacs of blessing, Lord. We want to be conduits where your blessings flow in and go uh, to our city, to our families, to the nations, Lord. I do pray that you would bless uh, um, our, our, our brother and sister over in South Asia, the, the canons as they gather, as, as they uh, meet today to train young pastors in, in that uh, unreached people group, Lord. Would you please bless them and empower them? And, and as we here give our money, would you remind us that this is, this is for the mission? This is not to a group of men. This is not to a building. This is not to a human movement or political group. This is for the eternal kingdom and everything done for and in the kingdom reaps fruit and a harvest, Lord. And none of our labor will ever be in vain because Jesus is living and reigning. Uh, we thank you for this glorious news. And as we give, would you bless those who give, God? All these things in your wonderful, strong son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians, you can <coughs> continue. I'll give you a hint. It's after Romans. I know you've all got Romans is all wavy and, and bookmarked and highlighted. So just go to the end of that and you'll find yourself in 1 Corinthians. And <clears throat> what, um, what, is, what is very typical of Paul, and we'll get into a little bit of his missionary um, uh, journey a little bit later, but what is very typical of Paul is that he would, he would find strategic... Uh, social, economic strongholds or, or centers, and he would go there with the gospel. Uh, not because people who live in the city are worth more than people in the farms or in the rural areas, but because if you can take the gospel to a city, it's like taking, taking uh, 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 the gospel upstream, and everything flows out of the city. Everything uh, uh, influences culture. The, the technology is there. The, the, the people are there. There's always a, a greater combination of different backgrounds there in the cities. And so we see that Paul went to Corinth on his second missionary journey, in fact, if you would all remember our series in 1 Thessalonians, I know Christians have terrible memories, but if you remember that series at all, that, uh, that, that church was planted only a couple of months before Corinth was. 
And so uh, this is in the same missionary journey as Paul went southwards down Achaia, uh, down, down, down Old Greece, um, and then got to Corinth. Uh, that was towards the very end of his missionary, his second missionary journey. So it was just after First Thessalonians, uh, sorry, after Thessalonica. But Corinth, as a city, it's, it's, it's an ancient Greek city. You can go back and look um, uh, for yourself on, <clears throat> on Wikipedia and get a whole bunch of details on that. I'm not going to go through all the ancient city because the reality is when Paul went to Corinth, it was no longer an ancient city. Now, you know maths. Things don't get younger as they get older. We all know that. But what had happened under the Roman rule is that there was this rebellion or there was this uh, revolt And the Romans came in and just destroyed the enemies, uh, tore down Corinth, burned everything, destroyed the city and took everybody off to be slaves. Uh, Sorry, men and women, uh, women and children were slaves, the men they slaughtered. And and then it was like that for about 100 years until the Romans decided, we want to repopulate that area, Let's, let's depopulate the cities a bit, we're getting too many people. So they threw some people out into Corinth and used all the old building foundations to build new buildings, used the old city roads to build new city roads. And so really, when when we're looking at first century in Paul's day, Corinth, we're looking at a young, new, upstart city that's only really been around for about, I I, I believe it's less than 100 years by the the time this uh, this juncture uh, rolls around. And so uh, that's sort of the makeup of the city. It, It was in this extremely, extremely advantageous spot. Uh, uh, I know none of us have started cities before here. Um, you were around at the beginning of Croatia, weren't you, Vic? That's right, that's right. That was, you, you're there. But the rest of us, we, uh, <clears throat> what made Corinth so advantageous is that it was a little, a little area, and on just above Corinth um, was this tiny little bridge, a complete bottleneck between North and and South Greece. It's literally as if you cut off all roads, all water, uh, all, all water travel between New South Wales and Queensland, and you could only go through the M1 highway. And so, obviously, you got, you're gonna, what, 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 what might be an average uh, crossing across the whole, whole breadth, everybody's bottlenecked in. And so, you, you start a city there, you're going to have all of the taxes, you're going to have all of the tolls, all of the pit stop mackers and KFCs there, and everybody's going to be spending their money there. That's where Corinth was. It was on this tiny, you'll see it in the back of your Bible. If you've got one of the elect standard versions, you'll find a little uh, map there that has, you'll find it eventually. Corinth, it's halfway between Jerusalem and Italy, the little boot. You'll find uh, Achaia, (coughs) Uh, underneath Athens, underneath uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. So there's this little bottleneck. It was so advantageous, but also, so that's north to south, but also east to west and west to east. If you were going to be going um, from Asia and from Israel over to Rome or from Rome anywhere to the east... You had to pass through Corinth. There was, you'll see it on that landmass. If you go underneath the, the, uh, uh, the, the southern border of Achaia through the Mediterranean Sea, you're going to go into some of the worst waters in the Mediterranean. You're gonna, so many people would die. There was, there was almost no hope going through there. So instead, what they did was they came to Corinth. What they would do is they would, they would get their ships up out of the water onto wooden rollers and they would push it for four miles across that little tiny bottleneck and then drop into the Mediterranean on the other side. 
So everybody going from Rome to Asia or Asia to Rome goes through Corinth. So again, just an absolute hub of a city economically, socially, and also religiously, which we'll look at in just a bit. So the population there is upwards of about 750 million, no, 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 sorry, no, 750,000, three quarters of a million people. Uh, Man, that... Preachers just exaggerate. There were 7 billion people in Corinth. Uh, So 750,000, and a lot of them were Greeks. So remember, it's a Greek city which the Romans destroyed and then repopulated with Romans. So it's a bit of a, it's got this ancient Greek feel going on, but then there's all these free, rich Italians there, and because it's a new city, lots of employment opportunities, a lot of immigrants came also from Asia and and Israel and Northern Africa, so you've got a real mix of a city. Lots of backgrounds, lots of races, but ultimately, Roman religion and Roman culture. The culture was extremely wealthy. Think, I don't know if you watched the movie. There was a book, which I've also read, but The Great Gatsby, if you've ever sort of watched that, and it's just all pomp, and it's all, you know, 1920s, the, the swing into the roaring 20s, everybody's got expensive cars, throwing their wealth around in the Hamptons of New York. Think that. That's what Corinth is like. Sort of, sort of like a richer, wealthier Vegas. I know, they've got roller coasters on top of buildings. How can you get wealthier? Think, think higher than that, more classy, more, more uh, up, upward in social standing. Corinth is just this, everyone's flashing their wealth. People are going there to get rich. Um, it's like the gold rush there, this new young city with so many opportunities. They've got parties, they are drinking furiously. They've got flashy hotels, they've got mansions, and of course where all those things are, You've got a lot of criminals coming in to try and steal that. Uh, you've got a lot of mixed backgrounds. Um, but what they didn't have, they did, not, they did not have this weight of ancestral tradition. Right? So, so you, uh, uh, people, people leave their old ancestral areas. Maybe it's, maybe it's the Pacific Islands. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's an African family. Maybe it's, it's uh, coming out of an Islamic background. It is just so interesting the way human beings work that once they're sort of away, there was nothing stopping them necessarily from living sinfully. But, but once they, they, they move locale, there's a break of, of heritage, of legacy, of tradition, of, of bondage. And so, what you had in Corinth was all these people, this very rich Greek-Roman city, but without all the ties of ancestral religion and traditions, and so it was everything goes for anyone there. <clears throat> they were young professionals. There was rich trade. There was lots of business, lots of success. It was all about, and you were there, everybody defined each other according to your occupation, your wealth, your education, your ethnic group, and your background religion. If you can sort of get into the elite classes of any of those, you are going to make it in Corinth. It's all about who you are and who you know, not so much what you're good at. What the rich people did was, they come together, they're bored, they don't have old traditions, they just start making new traditions. They started throwing all the slaves into pits and making some games, some sort of mini versions of Olympics, because they get bored, what do we do with all of our money flowing in from every corner of the globe? So they had games going on, much sports, a lot of uh, clubs, uh, a lot of even cults and new religion and entertainment, and you can imagine the culture. 
To make it big in the big city, it's about who you know and what you have. And so you get there and you don't have much and you know nobody. It's all about sucking up and schmoozing to the elite and rubbing shoulders with big names and just climbing the social ladder. It would be a toxic environment that uh, uh, really reminds us of many cities that we might think of or have visited before. It is a, what was very rich, and this is going to come up in the book of 1 Corinthians. What was very common was this, this, in order to climb the social status, you needed to not only be able to elevate yourself, but also pull others down. It was such a common thing in Corinth, uh, Corinthian culture. Hey, I mean, we see this among the elites today, don't we? It's, it's not enough to get yourself up. You have to shoot others down and question their legitimacy and their morality and their background and their birthplace and their, their, all, all of these sorts of things. And so everybody was in this habit of dragging other people through the mud to try and get to the elite of this newly founded city. And, and we're spending so much time on looking at this background uh, 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 culture because you're going to see that it's crept strongly into the church as Paul writes to it. Now, you might ask, what about the, what about the religions of Corinth? Of course, it was, it was Roman slash Greek, so they, they, they had uh, overlapping deities. Uh, there was no copyright laws back then in the temples. And so they, they worshipped Venus slash Aphrodite's, uh, which was uh, uh, the similar gods. They, they even threw in some Egyptian cults in there, who were people coming up from North Africa. Uh, they had a temple to Apollo. But what they had, off, off, in the, off in the distance, right, we've got Mount Kutha, a little flop of a mountain in, in, a, in Brisbane. Uh, you might go to Seattle and see uh, Mount Rainer, a huge, towering over the city in the, in the, in the distance. Uh, you go to Corinth, and what you've got is the uh, Acro-Corinthian, which really just means um, the above Corinth. And it was this huge mountain which had a, a flat top on it, very similar to like Mount Olympus in Greece. Um, and, or, uh, and, and what was up there was these huge, old temples to, let me get this right, it's, it was Aphrodite's temple. What was so, so attractive about this temple and this city and all the tourists passing through here was that in Aphrodite's temple, they had 1,000 plus slave girls whose, whose act of worship to their god was sexual behavior and activity. So there's just the enormous, enormous magnet to every man traveling on the Mediterranean come to Corinth, because what they would do is every night these, these young ladies would come down from the temple, from the, from the gods, and mingle among the men, and whore themselves out, and take all that money back to the temple as offering to the gods. So you've got a, 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 a very sexualized, tempting, worldly, even demonic, because it's all false god worship, uh, culture going on here, and all of these these religions in the background. <clears throat> they had festivals through the street, saying how proud they were of worshiping these gods. Okay, equivalent of of uh, LGBT parades. Right, you don't join in this. You're you're an insult to the city. Right, we have pride parades. You got to join in. Everybody's got floats. <clears throat> Jump on in there. They also worshipped all these gods publicly, and it was pretty much. Uh, the more gods you have, the better. Because 
You really don't know about these guys. If, I mean, you get to the front and Zeus doesn't let you in, so you've got to go down the hallway, maybe bring in Aphrodite, and she's, she's you know, we know what she's like, so uh, she only takes a good-looking guy. So now we're going to go down to the Egyptian heaven and ask if we can get in there because we worship his. And so everybody has this, has this multiplicity of idol worship in their homes and in their families. And so the exclusive call of Christ in this sort of culture was extremely costly. <clears throat> but that's where... Paul went. You can turn with me to Acts chapter 18. It is my practice that when we start a new book, we look at its story of being planted because uh, otherwise we just miss so much of the background. Uh, Acts 16 showed to us when Paul and Timothy and Silas went through uh, uh, Philippi and then they went in verse seven, in chapter 17 to Thessalonica. Then they were chased out of there, so they went down to Berea. But then the Jews from Thessalonica chased them to Berea, and so they ran from there as well. And then they split up, and Paul went to Athens. And verse, uh, chapter 17 is one of the most um, uh, uh, glorious apologetics that Paul gets up in the, uh, the, uh, in, the, uh, in the Areopagus and preaches Jesus Christ to these philosophers. And they go toe to toe. Many are saved. He stays there a while. And then he goes on to Corinth. So A, Acts 18, verse 1. <clears throat> Just going to rush through this. It says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, that happened in AD 49 to 50. Uh, Emperor Claudius, he was getting rid of all of these arguments between these Christians and all the Jews. And he just said, all Jewish-born people, get out of the city. So they were ejected. And so Paul finds Aquila and Priscilla in, uh, in Corinth. <clears throat> Moving on. He went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, that is uh, tent making, he was a leather worker on the side to make money for himself, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So this was Paul's missionary uh, uh, methodology. He would go to a city, a big thriving city, and his number one thing was because he knew the Jews were God's covenant people, and to them belong the first privilege of the gospel. And he knows if we can convert Jews, they will have much biblical knowledge and Old Testament history and, and maturity in religion to disciple the other Christians who just come straight off the block of paganism. And so he goes there. He, his, his often uh, uh, mentality was to convince the Jews that this Jesus of Nazareth is the guy who the Old Testament was pointing to. He would prove that he was risen. He would prove that he was God. And he would prove that he was the Old Testament Christ. But we'll go on. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, quick pause. Remember in Thessalon Th uh, Thessalonians when Paul kept saying how much he missed them. And so he sent Timothy and, and uh, Silas back up to Macedonia to check on Philippi and Thessalonica. That, that's what happened. And then they came back and met Paul in Corinth. So pick up here, verse 5 comes back, meets him again in, in uh, Corinth. And when they found him, he was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. That's what Paul was always doing, always testifying with the word. And when they opposed and reviled him, that is the Jews, 
He shook out his garments. That's an Old Testament way of, of cursing somebody, shaking out the dust from all of you, saying, you are up, it's up to you now. I'm not taking responsibility for you. He says, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Here's Paul preaching to his own people. They would not believe. They were reviling him, mocking him, just as those had done who murdered his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just as he had done murdering the Christians earlier in Acts. And in their, in their rejection and in their rebellion, Paul says, fine, you are just like your fathers who didn't listen to the prophets. Your heart is calloused. Your neck is not turning to listen. Your blood is on your own heads. I preached. You didn't listen. You damn yourselves. I'm going to the Gentiles. And so he did. Verse 7. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. Pronounce it however you want. A worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So this guy seems like he had believed in Christ as Paul had preached. <clears throat> he was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So maybe Paul only gets two converts from all these weeks of preaching, but it's the dude who lives next to the synagogue. That's, a pretty, that's good real estate, by the way. And it's the dude who rules the Jewish synagogue. That's a massive win. That's very strategic. <clears throat> Not that he... Did that, but the Lord saved them, giving Paul this hope. Uh, he believed in the Lord, verse 8, together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So on the back of this rejection, from city to city to city, he's opposed, he's beaten, he's thrown in prison, he's chased out, he arrives in Corinth, he's kicked out of the synagogues, but he has sheep that have heard the voice of their master Jesus, been saved, and he has this church to plant. Many of the Corinthians have believed. And in this great encouragement, we have now been through multiple cities where Paul, and, and, and as he wrote First Thessalonians from Corinth, he is tired, he is weary, he is just at the point of breaking. And this is what verse 9 says, and the Lord, that's Jesus, said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. Do you think that puts some boldness in Paul's step? It then says, And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. To Paul, he's, he's happy to hear that. He just heard Jesus, who watched him be chased and beaten town to town. He just got told, no one's going to attack you in this city. Of course Paul books the Airbnb for 18 more months. If I'm in this city, I'm safe. I'm staying here. I'll preach to these idiot Corinthians for as long as necessary if I cannot get beat up just a little bit more. Next verse. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack. It doesn't last long for Paul, does it? He gets one verse of peace, and it's back into the action. They made a united attack on Paul. Now, this wouldn't have been physical, uh, but they, they, well, partially physical. They, they came up with accusations. They grabbed him. They dragged him. 
to the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, that's what, Gallio is the guy sitting on top of the court. Everybody brings him in. These Jews say, he's breaking the law. And Gallio says, <clears throat> if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he down goes the gavel. And so Paul's sitting here, who has been marred and, and martyred almost in every city, he just has a legal precedent to be able to say, for the rest of his time in Corinth, the proconsul, the, the ruler of the city, says, it's all good. I'm allowed to be here preaching to Jews and to Greeks, which means Gentiles. He's a happy, happy man. And look what happens next. He drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Okay, Paul stole their last ruler of the synagogue and got him converted. So they got a new guy in, and they get him to try and bring Paul to court. He doesn't do a good enough job. So then the Jews all take him out and beat up their own dude. Paul's walking out free. He's wondering, did they, are they beating up their own dude? I'm usually getting beaten up by the Jews. He's skipping. He's loving life. And off he goes. Sosthenes, this leader of the Gentile, oh, sorry, of the synagogue, is being beat up in front of the tribunal. And Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Go back to 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. Just as you think it sort of <clears throat> it ends on a questionable note, and then Paul goes off to, uh, uh, to finish his missionary journey. Look at this, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. Our brother Sosthenes. That guy who you replaced Cyprus with, because I, I got him converted. Right, you replaced him with Sosthenes, then you all beat him up. Then I, I think he's looking for a new religion at this point. His own people just beat him up for trying to help. He comes along to old ex-Pharisee Paul. Here's the gospel. Thank you. I'll take him as well. The gospel is bearing fruit in Corinth. A lot of them are Gentiles, some of them are Jews, but it's, it's, a, it's a different setting to as we've seen back in 1 Thessalonians. It's such a different setting. But he was there, uh, so, so here's some differences. He was there for 18 months preaching and teaching. And then he had legal protection. Whereas back in Thessalonica, he was there only a few weeks, max a couple of months, and then he was chased out, and, and he was actually legally forbidden to come back to the city. Then he goes on from there. He goes back to Syria, which is Antioch. That was his, that's north of Jerusalem. If you look back on your map, that's north of Jerusalem, uh, just before uh, uh, Turkey, or in Turkey, really. That's the church that sent him originally on his missionary journey. So he goes back home, and then he starts off from there, going back through all the old cities he had visited, uh, strengthening and preaching again to all the churches. And it's when he arrives in Ephesus that he hears uh, uh, Stephanus. As Stephanus comes to him and tells him, the Corinthians have questions. Here's a letter full of questions for you, and I've got a report as well. Isn't it true? Christians are usually not the most honest people about themselves. They've always got lots of truth to share about other people. 
So the letters, the letter that comes from Corinth, we don't have it, but it's full of questions because all throughout this book, Paul answers questions. He goes, now, now, uh, uh, on to the subject of X, Y, Z, as you were asking. And so we realized that there was a, there was a, there was a Q&A going on. But uh, as well as that, Stephanus had come and said, now, Paul, just this letter aside, there's problems. Let me tell you what they are. Let me tell you what I'm seeing as a problem in Corinth. And so the whole structure of the book is Paul answers questions of the Corinthians, and then he addresses the problems that he's heard from, from Stephanus. And then he answers questions from the Corinthians and answers the problems that he's heard from Stephanus. And then he answers questions from them and then addresses concerns that he's heard from Stephanus. So that's the structure of the book. And, uh, and, and, and what we see... So this is being written A.D. 54. So he was there in A.D. 50 to 51. He's gone off for a few years, going to other churches, and then he's writing this book, 1 Corinthians, in A.D. 55. However, this is the second letter that he's written to the Corinthians. What we have is, in, I believe it's chapter 5, you'll have to follow up with me later, he, he talks about the other letter that I wrote to you, the first letter I wrote to you. So obviously, maybe he'd gotten questions from them already, or he'd heard some things. He writes to them, and, and we don't know why God uh, let this letter be called the lost letter. I'll, one, I'll give you one guess as to why it's called the lost letter. Right? We don't have it. It's gone. We have no recollection of it. Nothing in history, but Paul wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians. So really, 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is 3 Corinthians. Maybe he got super angry. Maybe he just flew off the handle. Maybe he said some stuff that he shouldn't have said. I don't know what happened, but it was not inspired by God, and so it was allowed to pass out of the protection of God's um, canon. <clears throat> Nonetheless, he's writing to them, and if you've ever seen the movie Mighty Ducks, and don't tell me you're too young for that movie. It's a classic. It should be in schools. Mighty Ducks uh, is, is this, this great, uh, uh, I believe it's an ancient Greek story, uh, uh, of, of this ice hockey team, right, who's, who's street kids, they're criminals, they're kicked out, they have no coach, and, and in comes somebody who's, who's been plucked out of his corporate job because he's been drink driving, and he's thrown over these guys and said, now... Coach these dudes, make them good, uh, bring them into the best team they can be. Uh, that's your job. That's your punishment. And, and I think this is sort of similar to the dynamic going on. To, don't, don't throw rocks at me. Similar, not the same, between Paul and the Corinthians. Or Paul and his Gentile churches. He is by no means going to stand up and say that this crew are a fine crew. They're going well. They are, they are the height of sainthood. They are, they are Christianity crystallized, these Corinthian Christians. That is not what is going on. But what you never see him do is talk badly about them. He stands up and he defends them against all these accusations about them and other people probably saying things to him. Right, Paul, you hear what's going on down the road at your Corinth church? Sort those losers out. Remove your name from their church building. And Paul does not treat it that way. <clears throat> Paul pulls them aside, then you know, he sort of defends them to everybody else. They're my team. I'll sort it out. Get off their backs. And he turns around to them. What the heck, guys? What are you doing out there? You, you know what you're making me look like? Sleeping with your stepmother? Come on, Jimmy. Sort things out. And he gives them harsh, strong words because he loves them. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You should know this is an, over, uh, an overview sermon. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14. We see this wonderful dynamic going on between Paul and the church. 
though he's speaking extremely strongly to them, he says, verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, I preached, you believed, I'm your spiritual father. I don't have babies. Paul didn't have a wife and children. He looked at the churches, those young, failing, dirty, nappy Christians and went, they're my kids. I love them. I speak hard words to them because I love them. And he says, verse 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. So this is going to be the dynamic going through 1 Corinthians. When we look at the church at the time that Paul is writing to them, the problem is not, as, as we look at the difference, right? We look at the Corinthian church, the Thessalonian church, entirely different. Thessalonian church only had Paul for a few weeks, and they were flourishing. They were flourishing. Paul has only almost good things to say about them. The Corinthian church is a straight-up scuba mess. It is terrible. And Paul writes to them, and, and, and the problem is not so much. As we see, the problem is not that it's Corinth. Well, this church was in Thessalonica, a holy city, and this church is in Corinth. The problem is not where it was. The problem is that there was just too much of Corinth in the church. What you never see, this is so interesting, what you never see in the Corinthian letters is Paul writing to them about their affliction in the world. They didn't seem to have it. They had legal protection. They had professional riches. They had this vibrant city. They didn't seem to be being attacked from the outside. The problem with the Corinthian church was that they were entirely worldly. All of the problems of the culture were found in the church, and therefore we have these problems. <clears throat> we have this, this seeking after worldly wisdom, which was divisive. They were slandering others. They were seeking their own glory in the church, as people did out in this town. They were dragging other people's names through the mud, and therefore Paul writes to them about unity in Christ about equality in Christ, about 1 Corinthians 13, love that puts others first in Christ. And he writes to them over and over again about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. The problem, sorry, the solution to every problem in the church is always more of Jesus. In the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians, he uses the word Jesus Christ, Jesus, or Christ, nine times in nine verses. He sets his pace. Everybody needs a clearer, more biblical, apostolic view of Jesus Christ by faith. That solves our problems. <clears throat> he preaches to them that way. And, and because there was so much of this worldliness in the church, that is why... You have people, here's, here's just, a, just a little spoonful of what we're going to get in 1 Corinthians. You had people pulling each other aside and suing one another, like Jerry Springer stuff going on, just yelling in the church, dragging their brothers and sisters before the court to try and get money out of one another. They were engaging in the worship meals of other religions. They were sleeping with certain people to get social standing to the glory of Jesus apparently. They were not calling out sin, but allowing it in the congregation because we're super tolerant, open and diverse church, and we don't want to judge anybody. They were, they were misusing spiritual gifts. They were rejecting core doctrines, such as the resurrection 
in order to appear more acceptable to their wider community. So you've got these young, professional, untrained, and here's the big, the big reason, first-generation Christians. They have not been raised in Christian households. They have not been taught the Old Testament law. They are entirely fresh off the block, pagans in their worldview. And so Paul's looking at them. It's only been a few years. And he's going to understand the fact that they're going to have a lot of problems, especially compared to Thessalonians. They never were afflicted. Never pray to God that you would just escape all persecution in life. You will end up looking more like the Corinthians than like the Thessalonians. The affliction, the pressure that comes onto the church has a way of squeezing out the worldliness of the church. Corinth didn't have that. They had ease and peace, and so they sucked up like a sponge the sins of the culture. So, look at verse 1 of chapter 1. That's intro done. Let's start a sermon. Verse 1. Okay, I've got 29 points over here. 39, sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's now, he's not so much laying down his authority, but he's reminding them why he does what he does. Maybe in the background here he's saying, there is nothing else that could make me deal with you for a living than the fact that the sovereign Lord knocked me off of my horse took my eyes away for three days and told me, this is what I'm going to be doing. The sovereign Lord made me this, an apostle by the will of the Lord. But this is what he's here to do. He's not going to give up on them. He's an apostle by the will of God. He's not here as long as they succeed well and they give him a a neat and tidy ministry. He's here for the glory of God by the calling of Jesus Christ. This is, (laughs) I think this is what would have been continually, continually supporting Paul through everything, right? That, again, he's receiving these questions from Stephanus. He's opening up the scroll, and he's reading, and he cannot believe what he's reading. He's, he's reading questions that they never trained you to answer in rabbi school when he was growing up. Paul, is there a good or a bad number of whores to sleep with on the way to church on Sunday mornings so that we attract the blessing of Aphrodite's as well? What? That, that's not a question. He's looking through the, the, the question answers sheet that they were given on the, on the, on, on the, uh, on the phone call line. Uh, get, the, I, I don't have answers to this. Opens a little bit more. Paul, can you tell everybody to stop judging me? Me and my stepmom love each other and God doesn't judge us. I, this is not what I saw. I was a holy man. I wasn't even married. I was just preaching in the synagogues. Jesus knocked me off my horse and now I've got to deal with this? This is entirely unlike what he would have expected in his teen years, even his adult years, right? Then we've got uh, 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 even even worse things going on with people take, basically, I can't really uh, uh, make it any, uh, make it more pretty than it is. They're basically lining the communion table with vodka and just taking shots for communion. They're getting drunk on communion wine. Then the poor people who don't bring their own wine go and take all the, the grape juice, like Baptists over there. And, we'll, and they have these feasts over communion. And then the poor people are starving. But this is because, you know, we all love each other. Then they're taking sexual partners in worship to Jesus. No, they're forgetting to put their pants on to come to church on Sunday. This is the sort of mess that Paul has to deal with. And if it was not the fact that he was called by the sovereign Lord to be an apostle, then he would not be doing what he's doing. But here is the grace 
the love and the peace that comes from God through his leader, Paul. <clears throat> now what we have here is, is something so very interesting. Look at verse 2 through 3. You think, okay, so Tom, if the holy apostle Paul really got wind of all this stuff happening at Corinth, he's going to slam them. In fact, in fact, he's probably going to tell them, have no assurance of your salvation until you stop, repent, and I see fruit of it. But look at what he does in verse 2 to 3. He says, <clears throat> he says, to the church of God, in fact, wait, let's go through all the way down to verse 9. I want, want, you, want to show you how many times he says to them something implying that they are a Christian church, that the Holy Spirit indwells. Uh, verse 1, he says, our brother Sosthenes, right? my brother, your brother. Verse 2, he says, the church of God in Corinth. Verse 3, he says, they're sanctified in Christ, they're saints. He says that Jesus is their Lord and that God is their Father. In verse 4, he says that the grace of God was given to you. In verse 5, he says that uh, they have received the riches of Christ. In verse 6, he says that uh, the testimony of Jesus was confirmed among you. Right? They actually believed. Verse 7, he says that they are not lacking gifts. And again, he calls Jesus our common Lord. Verse 8, he says that Jesus will sustain you. He says that you are guiltless. He says that Jesus is our Lord. Uh, verse 9, he says that you are called to God. Uh, he says that they have fellowship of his Son in Jesus. And lastly, he says that Jesus Christ is our plural Lord. And we want to say, hang on, aren't they sinning? Aren't they in mess? Aren't they they're not built up in a good, stable, neat, tidy Christian tradition yet? But friends, that is the words, if, if we want to disagree with Paul here, they're the words of the accuser. The accuser who goes by the name Satan points to other people who are less progressed in the Christian walk, and, and instead of rushing to to help and serve and teach, they stand back and they blame. Right? So many people have this, this view of the church that it's supposed to be somewhat of a museum, now, what do you do with artifacts in a museum when they get a smear on them or a crack over them or a statue falls and is broken? You get rid of it. Get it out. Don't touch it. Remove it. It's no longer making us look good. It's no longer worthy of being in the museum. But if we have, like Paul, a view of the church that we are militant, we're a battalion on the front line, then you have a much different mindset. People start bleeding, start falling over, start getting weak. You, that's okay. You pull them back from the front line, encourage them, strengthen them, retrain them, put a weapon in their hands, fill that gap, keep on, keep on pressing forwards, blades down to the front here, archers, get ready, rise up. Somebody starts wandering off. You don't shoot them in the back just in case they join the enemy. You, you race after them, bring them back where it's safe, encourage them, come alongside them. This is the view that Paul has with this mess of a Corinthian church. And if it is not stark and almost insulting to our Christian sensibilities, we have not understood the state of the Corinthian church. Christians sleeping together, prostitutes coming to church, men joining themselves, they're tolerating homosexuality, the men are going to Pride Month and celebrating with their work friends, they're dating non-Christians, okay? 
equivalent. All the Christians have Tinder on their phone. That's not a problem. Jesus loves it. They're going to all the music festivals dressed in basically nothing. They're going to the demon temples and checking out partners. They're suing each other. They're drunk on communion wine. They're doing everything other than what they ought to be doing, and they're denying core doctrines. The solution, Paul does not say, mature Christians leave. He says, you are my brothers. You have the Holy Spirit. You're a temple. You are saints. Look at verse 2. He says, he he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. God does not deny his name from you. He calls you his church. The church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who call upon the name of the Lord in every place, Both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul hits here two uh, two elements of holiness. He says those who are saints in Christ Jesus, or or, uh, my translation says those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. They are sanctified positionally. This is what theologians call positional holiness. You are in Christ Jesus by faith. You are, no matter your background, where you came, what club you just walked out of to come to church, whether you still got the glitter on you from your previous uh, party, you, if you are by faith in Jesus, you are a saint. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have been forgiven of all of your transgressions. You have been resurrected from the grave, washed of your stains, and seated with Jesus in heaven. That's your positional holiness. That is unchangeable, unchangeable, unattackable, untouchable by the world, or even your sins, your members of the church. You have righteousness in him. You're in his body. But then there is a calling on every one of those people. Paul then says, you are called to be saints. This is not positional holiness. This is practical holiness. And this is what the whole book is going to be about. Unthinkable situations of sin and Paul's call on them to be holy. He's going to tell them things along the lines of seeking the things that are above, as he tells them in Colossians. He's going to tell them to pursue the law's good teachings now that you're in Jesus. He's going to say, be different and not conformed to the culture. If you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, you are called to act that way. Be saints. You must strive for Christ-likeness, not worldliness. You must fight your internal passions and desires. You must live out the new nature that God has put into you. You must set your hope fully on the life to come, not this world. You must live as God's holy temple, not a temple to any old deity or your own passions. You must be rich in Jesus, not rich in worldly things and belongings. You must be mature in biblical wisdom, not proud in your social influence or your popularity. You must be pure, cutting out the leaven, not allowing it to permeate and pollute the whole church. And as we finish here, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is going to be somewhat thematic for the whole book. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. This is the continual dynamic of Corinthians. You are saints in Christ Jesus. What are you doing not acting like it? Verse 9. Or don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He uses the word some there quite loosely. You're all in that list. Most of you are ticking multiple boxes, he's saying. Such were some of you. But here's the good news. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our Lord. That is the motivation of Paul, that he can speak to a sinful people. Say, you by faith. And I want to ask you tonight, have you, is this true for you? Have you, by simply looking to Jesus, lost all of your sin? Have you, seeing him on the cross, dying, bleeding, crying out in prayer for his murderers, have you seen that, the salvation of your soul? Have you cast onto that foolish, disgusting, weak sign of a man on a cross, as Paul will say in the next chapter? Have you thrown on that all of your hope of eternal life? Your only hope for what will come in the world to come? Have you believed in him and been washed, sanctified, forgiven, justified in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit? And if you have, if you have, then you are called to live in light of what you are. Become more and more what Jesus Christ has made you, a saint. Make no excuse. Friends, if you have not placed your faith, make it today. No one outside of Jesus will, will experience anything but the condemnation of eternal hell upon the moment of death. Jesus welcomes the sinful and turns them into saints. That is our great hope here at Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Let's bow our eyes, close our eyes, bow our heads and pray to our good Lord. <clears throat> Father God, we are so so offended as we look at the sin of the Corinthian church, uh, the disgusting reality of what was going on, and what I believe that in doing that, we only show how little knowledge of ourselves we truly have. We are the Corinthians. We tolerate sin. We, we allow the culture to come in and affect us. We, we follow what the world says instead of what your word tells us. God, we thank you that the grace which was powerful in the preaching of Paul is still powerful through his written words in this letter. We look forward, God, to, to hearing you condemn and call out and convict our sin. And we look forward, Lord, by, by your Holy Spirit that, that you would bring us into righteous living. There are many of us here, Lord, who sit and we, we are afraid of our sin being found out. And we really, we, we want it to just continue on. It'll be too embarrassing to haul out. It's, it's giving us momentary pleasure. But God, you are a Lord who loves us. And in your love, you, you pull the weeds out. You shine light onto our dark living. You call us to be the saints that you have created us to be in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We look forward to having our sin pulled away from us so that we, like the Corinthians, may become more and more a holy church in Christ Jesus. Please, Lord, save souls. 
multiply us, multiply our joy, multiply our assurance, all to the glory of Jesus Christ, who is enthroned forever and ever in heaven at your right hand. It's in his name that we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.